Uh, so good morning everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike. Um, I've been in the church now for about 18 months. Uh, Sarah, my wife, was leading worship this morning. Uh, when we first moved here, we moved here because God called us to come and be part of this church. Um, at the time we had one little girl and another one was in the oven. And a few months after we got here, Joy was born. So we've got Sophie and Joy, our two little girls so far. Um, so that's, that's me, that's who I am. Uh, as John said, I'm carrying on our series of Joseph today. So this is the second part. The first part was, wasn't really getting into the story of Joseph. Stuart last week gave like an overview of how the story of Joseph fits in the big story of God through the Bible. And actually it comes very early on. So we've had creation, God has made it every, everything. We've had the fall of man. And then very soon after that, we get to the story of Joseph. Because Joseph's father, Jacob, he actually got renamed by God to Israel. Um, and actually in the, the, the passage we're going to read today, both names are used, but it's talking about the same person. But from him, the nation of Israel comes. So we're still, we're very early on in the big story of God in the Bible. Jesus comes way later. So <clears throat> we're going to read part two. The, the, I've called my message this morning, The Poison of Pride. You'll see why as we go through. But we're going to be reading from Genesis 37. Uh, and verses 2 to 11. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If not, the words are going to come up on on the screen as I go through. So Genesis 37, verses 2 to 11. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come down to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now when I came to read this passage to prepare for today, I've read it before, I'm fairly familiar with the story, but when I came to read it to prepare for today, God, all he really seemed to be showing to me was was how dysfunctional this family is and how... Almost every character you read in this story are just full of pride and arrogance and the way they react to each other and respond to each other. Um, so, but also what we see is, is how, what that leads to, what comes next. So next week we're going to hear what happens to Joseph, the reaction of his brothers and what they do to basically try and get rid of him, the plot to get rid of him. Um, <clears throat> so what I want to do is just go back and pick out some observations. Why did I come to this conclusion? Why was God saying so much to me about how proud they all were? first thing you notice in the first, uh, first verse is that it says Joseph being 17 years old. So in this story, Joseph is a young guy. Later on in the story of Joseph, we see that he becomes a guy of quite noble character. He's, quite, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a good person, he's humble, he's, he's forgiving, he's, he's a really noble guy. But right now, he's far from it. And I recall, when, you know, when, when I was 17, I was quite an arrogant, up-myself little jerk, to be honest. You know, I was... Um, I, I got really good grades at school. I was on track to go to university in Cambridge. I thought, I, I know everything. I know more than anyone else. No one can tell me what to do. You know, I know better than other people. That's what I was like. I got to university, and actually I encountered loads more people that were far, far more intelligent than I was. So rather than being the big fish in the little pond, I was the tiny little minnow in the ocean full of whales and sharks and all this scary stuff. God started to use that. I wasn't a Christian at the time. God used that really to, to start to break me down and start to humble me. I can see that looking back. I needed that to go through that process to get to the point where I could actually consider God was real and start investigating him. Um, so basically right now, Joseph is young. He's got a lot of growth to do, um, but he is, he is proud. So the next verse says, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now there's quite a lot of debate about Joseph's motivations here. If you read com- the commentaries and other things, people aren't, don't quite agree. Some people think that, that he's, he's a snitch. You know, he's, he's telling tales on his brothers. He's trying to show, out, show to his father how bad they are and how good he is. 
And that's one, one interpretation. Another one is that perhaps actually Jacob asked him to, in effect, spy on his brothers and bring reports back, in which case he's just being an obedient son. And it's quite important which one you believe is true. Now, if you look at the, the underlying Hebrew that is used or becomes a bad report, the word is associated with whispering, defamatory, evil reports, or an unfavorable saying. This isn't just an emotionless report he's bringing back to his dad. He's, he's, he's being really critical about his brothers and picking up on their faults and trying to you know, show to his father how bad they are and, in effect, how good he is. It's very judgmental. And then it goes on. It says, Israel loved Joseph more. Now, this isn't the best example of parenting. You know, Jacob had a favorite. This wasn't very helpful. Um, and, and the brothers were quite well aware of that. Even if they weren't, Jacob makes it obvious. He goes on and says, he made him a robe of many colors. Now, Sarah wanted me to talk about Jason Donovan and sing some songs and put on a fancy coat. And, you know, I'm sorry, that's just, that's just not my bag. That's not where we're going to go with it today. But it's just an example of how Jacob didn't help the situation. You know, he, he made it very clear Joseph was his favorite. And that really didn't help. And so it says the brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, perhaps that's understandable. Um, but, but also, their response just shows that they're kind of suffering from an entitlement mentality. They're the older brothers. They think they should be the most important, the most valued, most loved. Uh, but Joseph is being the favorite. And so their, their nose is put out of joint. Then it goes on and we get the first of Joseph's dreams. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And I just think, what was Joseph thinking? You know, he knew what the environment was like, what the relationship was like with his brothers. Why did he tell his brothers this dream? This, this dream that kind of where God was foretelling how they were going to come and bow down to him. It's not going to help, is it? Um, but basically what he's saying is, behold! In other words, check me out. I'm going to rule over you guys. That's not going to help the situation, is it? He's showing his pride, but obviously they, they respond in hating him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he goes on towards the end of the passage, and he dreams another dream, his second dream. Did he learn from the last time? <clears throat> no, he didn't. It says he told it to his brothers. Of course he did. And not only them, he told it to his father too. And so his father rebuked him, and his brothers were jealous of him. And again, you could say these, re- these reactions, these responses are understandable. But still, they are prideful responses to Joseph. Now, in their culture, in their time, obviously the father should be respected. The eldest, eldest sons are probably more important. But they have that in their head, and they think that, that that means they should be more valuable, more important. And that's not necessarily the case. All people have the same value to God. And so they didn't respond very well. But we need to be careful that we don't read this story and all of their shortcomings and go, oh, tut, tut, bad Joseph, bad Jacob, bad brothers. What we're seeing here and what we're being confronted with is the fallen condition of humanity. It's not just about them. It's about us as well. And it's about all of our need for a saviour. But also what I want you to see is that through, even though we see here a Joseph who is very proud, um, arrogant, God still gave him these amazing dreams and revealed things to him about his future. Amazing promises. And also we see later it goes really badly for Joseph as a result. Um, But we do see that God uses that to achieve his purposes. So one of the key things I want you to be aware of today as we look at pride um, is if, you, if, if God kind of reveals areas of pride in your life, don't think you're done for ministry. <laughs> you know, God uses people who are like this. It's quite clear in this story. Although, of course, we do need to try and address it. But I'm not perfect. I've got pride in my heart. I need God's help to deal with it. You know, I'm not standing here as an example of humility for you to mimic. One thing that really helped me is a little book called Humility, True Greatness. This is by a guy called C.J. Mahaney. This was really, really beneficial to me in... in kind of learning to grapple with pride and trying to grow in humility and get on that process. One thing he says in that book is no one can say, I'm humble. And he's absolutely right. You can't put that on your CV. What are your skills? Oh, I'm very humble. <laughs> no, you're not. You've put it on your CV. You want people to see it. You want people to think that about you. That's not humble. Oh, it is humble. Look at all these examples of things I've done showing how humble I am. You can check. It doesn't work like that, you see. That, that, that's proud. You want everyone to see how humble you are. That's how it works. We're all so proud. You can't say, I'm humble. But what CJ says in this book, and it's really useful, he says, all we can say is we're proud people pursuing humility by the grace of God. And that's wise. That's, that's kind of this battle we're in. We're, we're, we are proud. It's in us. And we've got to do battle with it um, and seek to cultivate humility in our lives. So with that, that theme, what we're going to look at this morning is, first of all, I want to look at 
why humility? What's so special about humility? What does the Bible say about why we should pursue it and try and grow in it? Um, then I'm going to look at what is pride from a biblical, biblical perspective. What is real humility? Because I think it's very easy to misunderstand what humility is. Uh, then to try and apply this into our lives, what we're going to look at is I'm going to ask you a few questions, probing questions really, to try and help you think about or help try and expose where pride is active in your heart. Um, and then I'll give you a few little tools for the fight at the end. So if you've got a Bible, um, I'm just going to look at another scripture that kind of gives an overview of some of the themes we're going to look at. And it's in 1 Peter verse, chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. And it says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, I'm really glad that Melanie spoke to us a couple of weeks ago about, about the Bible, how, how valuable it is and how it's above us. It is greater than us, and we should submit our lives to it. She also spoke of a, a, um, a sermon she heard once, and I think it was one I was in too. It's, you know, I have the same memory, where the guy took the Bible, put it above his head, and talked about how you know, we are subject to this Bible. It's above us. And I just feel like I want to do the same thing today, and all of us to do the same thing. So if you've got your Bible, I'll just ask you, please, just stick it above your head. I'm going to pray for us. Just hold it there. If you haven't got one, just imagine you've got it you know, above your head. And I just want to pray for us before we move on. Father, we want to recognize that your word is above us. We are subject to your word. It has authority over our lives. We're not just going to pick and choose little bits of it. Lord, if we come across bits that are difficult, that challenge us, Lord, we want, give us the humility to respond to that properly, to receive it, to consider it, and to, if necessary, repent and make changes in our lives. We thank you for this book. We thank you for what you've revealed to us. And we just pray this morning that you'll give us a humility to allow it to speak to us and be fruitful in our lives for your glory. Amen. So, why humility? What is the motivation for humility? I'm just going to pick out a few scriptures. First one from Isaiah 66 verse 2. It says this, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, God is searching for something in particular, something that acts like a magnet to capture his attention and his gaze, and that is humility. He's decisively drawn to it. The person who is humble is the one who draws God's attention. That's what this verse is saying to us. That's a really good motivation for trying to cultivate humility in our lives. Second one, 2 Kings 22, 19. I've taken some of the words out. It's quite a long verse. I've just picked out the bits that are relevant. It says, Because you humbled yourself before the Lord, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you. Not just here, but in many other places in the Bible, God has shown that he listens to the humble. He partners with them. So if you can grow in humility, God promises he's going to listen to you. That's amazing. Next one is in Micah. 6 verse 8, this is quite a well-known verse. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So humility, among other things, is simply required by God. It's simply required for life and godliness. And then finally here, 1 Peter 5, 5, we read this earlier. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The first half of that, you can see God is in active opposition to pride. And proud people. We'll explore that a little bit more shortly. But then it says, He gives grace to the humble. And what he's talking about here is it's the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it, we get it. If we can be humble, that, that comes our way. And so humility is, is our greatest friend. And, and if, if we can grow in humility, there are so many promises in the Bible apply to us that we can take and, and believe in. It says, It draws the attention of God. He promises he's going to listen to you, and it invites his active, gracious support in our lives. Those are some very, very good reasons for, for humility. Now, I haven't explained really what humility is yet. I'm going to get there. First of all, what I want to look at next is what is pride. Humility is like the antidote. Pride is the poison. So, what is pride? And the first thing you need to know is that pride is demonic. Now, in our culture, that's not necessarily recognized, but pride is demonic. It was Satan's first sin. He was an angel, and he became proud in his heart. He didn't want to serve God. He wanted to be God. He didn't want to follow God. He wanted to be the person who was glorified instead of God. 
And this was his first sin. He was cast out of heaven along with the angels that followed him. We call them demons. He came down to earth and he started to tempt Adam and Eve. He started to tempt our first parents. He said this sort of thing to them. He says, you don't need God. You can be like God. You don't need to obey God. You can follow your own ideas. You don't need to live for his glory. You should live for your own. Don't you realize how gifted you are? Don't you realize what potential you have? You see, God is reducing your potential. You need to get rid of that guy. You need to be all you can be. And we ate. Adam and Eve ate. They listened. And we do the same thing. Ever since, pride has been the problem. Every sin since then is sourced and birthed and bathed in pride. But my, my worry is that you know, many of us don't realize pride is a problem. Because what Satan did next is he went into the marketing business. He rebranded pride. He called it things like self-esteem, self-worth, self-help, self-sufficiency, self-love. Me, my thoughts, my ideas, my desires, my demands, not God and other people. But it's all sin. It's deeply embedded in the culture around us. It's in our souls from birth. We've grown up in this environment, this environment where pride is a virtue, not a value. It says, be all you can be, do all you can do. Achieve all you can achieve, but that's exactly what Satan did, don't you see? It's demonic. You need to realize we live in a demonically inspired culture. It wants, to make, it wants you to make you the center of your universe, your glory, um, the goal of your existence. It wants you to think that everyone should bow down and recognize how amazing you are. And that's absolute rubbish. It's satanic. Forget self-help. We can't help ourselves. We need Jesus. Forget self-esteem, self-help. It is no help at all. Because God opposes the proud. Think about that. To fight, to, to be proud is to fight God. That's a losing battle, isn't it? In Proverbs eight thirteen, the wisdom of God speaks out and says, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs sixteen five says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. God hates pride. And he is fiercely opposed to it. But the real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It does. It's there. It's in all of us. The real issue is where it exists and how it's being expressed in your life. You see, it's strongly and it is dangerously rooted in all of us. Far more than I think most of us care to admit. John Stott has thought about this and he wrote the following. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And I'd say I meant to that. That is absolutely spot on. The essence of pride is contending for supremacy with God. It's about lifting our hearts up against him. It takes many forms. It works itself out in our lives in many different ways. But ultimately, it's got one aim, self-glorification. It's about robbing God of the glory that's due to him. Trying to take it for ourselves. It's refusing to acknowledge our dependence on him. Wanting people to look to us, to be impressed by us rather than God. No wonder God opposes pride. No wonder he hates pride. So I want to put a health warning on this morning's message. If you've got ears to hear, like Jesus would often say, you're probably going to feel a few spiritual jabs in the ribs this morning. Because I think God has got a lot of things he wants to expose and correct in our hearts. So be listening for that and be humble enough to receive it. So, What is real humility? Like I said earlier, this is something we can often get wrong. We don't really sometimes understand what humility is. Now, the root of the word humility is linked to knowing or accepting your place. It's about honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. In Romans 12, verse 3, it says it this way. It says, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but assess yourself with sober judgment. So be honest about who you are. This is who I am, this is who I'm not. This is what I can do, this is what I'm capable of doing, this is not what I'm capable of doing. This is who God has made me to be, this is not who God has made me to be. See, God has made you for a specific purpose. If you're a leader, then lead. If you're a children's worker, get involved in the children's work. If you're a worship leader, get involved in the band. If you're a preacher, preach. All these different things. If you're a server, serve. Just find what God has made you to do and get involved serving in that way, in this church, in your life. And rejoice in it. But also the, the word, the English word humility comes from a Latin word which is humus, which literally means dirt or earth. And I quite like that because it reminds us that we're, we're formed from the dust of the earth and we're going to return to the dust. We're created, in other words. We're not the creator. Can I, you know, it puts us in our, the right context, in the right place. The trouble is many people can take that the wrong way. They can literally think they are dirt. 
These people have low self-esteem. They put themselves down. They consider themselves of little value. And I've got to say, that's a demonically inspired view of ourselves. The gospel teaches us we're of enormous worth to God. Jesus came and died for us. This is our identity in him. We're, we're adopted. We must not think less of ourselves. That's not what humility is. Now, a guy called Rick Warren, um, he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Some of you may have read it. He puts it this way. Humility is not about thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking of ourselves less. And I'll just read that again. It's not about think. It's not about thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking of ourselves less. It's a bit twee, it's a bit American, but it's true. It's deeply related to the battle between selfishness and selflessness. See, humble people are far more concerned about meeting other people's needs, serving them willingly, joyfully, with no thought of getting anything in return. They are selfless. Next, humility completely redefines what greatness is. In Matthew 20 and many other places in the Gospels, we see the disciples quarreling amongst themselves about who's the greatest. But the trouble is what they're talking about there is things like position, power, authority. You know, that's what they equate with greatness. Uh, But Jesus constantly says to them, no, that's not what greatness is. Jesus says things like in Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So he turns greatness on its head. It's completely the opposite way around to the way the world sees it. Humility works itself out with a servant's heart, a servant's attitude, a servant's lifestyle. And that's greatness in the eyes of God. So humility completely redefines what greatness is. And then lastly, and probably most importantly in this section, Jesus is our best example. He's the most humble person that has ever lived. In Philippians 2, it talks about how our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was so humble that he left his throne in heaven and he came to a manger. He left wealth. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says he came in poverty. Our God became a man. Our king came down to serve his subjects. He was born in humble circumstances. He lived in a simple town. He worked as a carpenter. For a lot of his life, he was homeless and broke. God. He was humble. He served people. You know, he actually washed the feet of his disciples, which normally was the job of a slave. You know why? Because in those days, if you went outside in your sandals, walked down the street, your feet would get covered in animal dung. That's what it was like those days. So if you went into somebody's house, first thing that would happen is a slave would wash your feet. Jesus did that for his disciples. Not only that, he washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, the man who was stealing from him, and ultimately was going to betray him with a kiss for his murder. Jesus knew that was going to happen, and he still washed his feet. That is humility. He went to the cross, he suffered, he died in our place for our sins. He was falsely accused, he received that humbly. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was stripped and flogged, and he received all of that humbly. And he went to the cross, and listen to this, the creator let his creation crush him. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But the creator of the universe, the person who made us, let his creation crush him. Let that sink in. When that truth really lands on you, when it really gets into your heart, the truth that you deserve nothing but death and hell, that you get heaven at the cost of the life of the Son of God, so much for pride, so much for self-entitlement, self-importance, it's It's over. Humility happens. You can't look at the cross of Jesus and feel self-important. You can't do it. But it is a battle. We have to preach it to ourselves. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. But Jesus is absolutely altogether humble. He's our best example of humility. So by way of application, as I said before, what I want to do now is ask you a few questions. And I want you to consider them. See if we can expose where pride is in your hearts and your lives. So consider these with sober judgment. The first one is, do you submit readily to authority? In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, as we read earlier, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, we don't quite have an eldership here yet. We've got a team of leaders. We're on on a a journey to get there. But we do have a team of leaders, in effect, performing that function. One of the most advantageous things for you is to be subject to your elders or your leaders. That is, submit to them, take their counsel, listen to them. Trust someone other than yourself. 
especially for those of you who are younger, either by physical age or by spiritual maturity. You know, we saw earlier in the story of Joseph, he was a young guy, he was full of pride, he needed this. He needed to be subject to people and to be accountable to people, rather than thinking he was, he was the number one. We have to be under authority, we need it, because we're all sinners, we all make mistakes. We need to be accountable to someone. So in being subject to your, your leaders, your leaders are subject to one another, it's a safe environment to be in, it's a good place to be. So do you submit readily to authority? Number two, do you worry about the future? Humility is a really powerful weapon against what Peter calls anxieties. We read earlier in 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now when Peter says anxieties, he's talking about things like panic attacks, stress, sleeplessness, all of that sort of stuff. Worrying about the future. But often, now you've got to listen to this, often these things are sins that we need to repent of. And I'm probably going to need to explain that. I know there are medical reasons for some people's anxiety, so I'm not talking about those. But for many people, if not most people, their anxieties are the result of sin. Because the problem here is, anxiety works this way. You're aspiring to two attributes of God that are his attributes alone, they're not ours. You want to be all-knowing, that is omniscient. You want to be in control of everything, that is sovereign. These are two characteristics of God. They're his alone. They're not part of who we are. So omniscient, meaning you're trying to predict the future. You think something bad might happen. You're trying to predict it. You're stressed about, out about it. You're freaked out about it. You're running all the worst-case scenarios. You're saying, if this happens, I'll do that. If that happens, I'll do this. Thinking about everything that could potentially happen, what you're trying to be is all-knowing. And then sovereign meaning, well, I'm going to control what happens. I'm going to control everything. That might happen, I'm going to control it. I'm going to do this and that and the other thing. But you see, we're not all-knowing. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to go. And secondly, we're not sovereign. We can't control the future. We can't control all things. Proud people who want to be omniscient and sovereign, internally they experience anxiety because they realize they can't do it. They're not God. We can't do this stuff. So it leads to depression, despair, panic attacks, sleeplessness, anxieties. So how can humility help with anxiety? Well, you see, humble people know God's omniscient, I'm not. God is sovereign, I'm not. What I'm going to do, rather than trying to be all-knowing and sovereign, rather than, rather than trying to predict the future and control everything, I'm going to cast my anxieties about it on him because I trust that he cares for me. I'm going to take responsibility for what I have to do but the worry about it, I'm going to cast that onto God and I'm going to trust him and let him work it out. For some of you, if not many of you, anxieties, they're not conditions that need to be managed. They are sins that need to be repented of. Anxiety is a sin often. Not always, but often. So cast your anxieties on him. You confess them to him as a sin. You trust he's going to care for you. And humility helps with anxiety. Number three, are you teachable? Proud people don't like to learn. They like to teach. They don't like to listen. They like to talk. Proud people act like they know it all. That's what I was like when I was 17. I thought I knew it all. I wouldn't want to listen to anyone else. I know better than you. Shut up. As soon as you start to say something, they're like, yeah, I know that. They just keep talking. They finish your sentences. They speak over you. They don't let you have your say. That's what proud people are like. They're not teachable. Humble people are. Humble people know they don't know everything. Humble people know that there are other people who know more than they do. Humble people are teachable. They'll listen, they'll receive advice, they'll download other messages, they'll read books, they'll sit under teaching. If you ask them to read a book, they'll read it. So are you teachable? Number four, how do you respond to setbacks or when your plans fail? Proud people, they get mad, they get angry. So let's say, for example, you go to leave work, your car won't start. They're like, oh, God, man, this sucks. God, why are you doing this to me? I've got to get home on time. I've got this and the other thing I've got to do tonight. I've got to go out. They get angry. They start railing at God and complaining. But let's say later on they learn maybe there was a nasty accident on their usual route home. If they'd left on time, they could have been caught up in it. You see, God is in control of everything. What we sometimes see as our plans being destroyed could be God saving you, could be him working out his will in your life. We just don't know, but God is in control. He knows everything. See, humble people recognize that. They recognize the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. 
Every day we've got to plan, we've got to decide various things. And we should do that. That's responsible living. The thing is, God has got ultimate veto to issue a course correction where necessary. For some people, that's necessary quite a lot. For, you know, it's, it's important to recognize. Humble people believe that. Humble people accept that joyfully. Number five, how do you respond to correction or rebuke? Now, this is a surefire way to discover pride in people's hearts. Correct them, rebuke them. They can be nice as pie, but as soon as you challenge them and say, maybe, I, you know, I don't think you did that right, or you rebuke them and say, you know, what you just did then is way off. You need to go and apologize to that person. They're just, their character changes. They become all prickly. They're like, how dare you? You're no better than I am. They start changing the subject, shifting blame, defending themselves, arguing with you. Humble people say, well, okay, you know, I, I know you love me. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I want to seriously consider this. I want to look at this. I want to be like Jesus. I know I'm not like Jesus. I need other people to point things out in my life. So if you're correcting me, if you're rebuking, rebuking me, I need to be humble enough to receive that and to consider it. Not immediately justify and defend myself. So how do you respond to correction or rebuke? Number six, we're nearly done here. How are you at serving and being served? Now, proud people can go one of two ways. Firstly, they only want to be served. Serving others is beneath them. They want everyone to serve them. They don't like to serve others. That's proud. That's quite obvious. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. But secondly, there is a a, a subtle, like a, a religious form of pride that just refuses to let anyone serve them. I'll serve you. You don't need to serve me. I'm the mature spiritual one. You're the hopeless wreck. Jesus sent me to help you. You're very welcome. You've probably met these kind of people before. Now, they might not say it that way, but that's their heart. Oh, I see you have this need. How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? No, that's fine. I'm the server. You're the servee. I do things for people. I don't get served by anyone. That's pride. It's self-sufficiency. It's pride. It's something I know I'm prone to. I like to do everything myself. I don't like people to help me. But it's pride, and I need to deal with it. Sometimes these religiously proud people, they look really humble because they're always serving. They're always doing things for other people. But sometimes it's not because others need service. It's because they need to be acknowledged, recognized as the server, as this good, humble person. That's still pride. It's still pride. Humble people, on the other hand, they can serve other people quietly, simply, invisibly even, and not get any credit for it. How are you at serving and being served? And then number seven, this is the last one here. Are you more aware of people's faults or of God's grace in their life? Proud people, like we saw in Joseph in the story earlier, are keenly aware of other people's sin, other people's faults, and not their own. Proud people are always competing. They, they look for faults in other people to make themselves feel better about themselves. And actually, it often comes from a misunderstanding of the gospel. They don't understand or they refuse to believe that their salvation is complete, it's finished, it's a free gift of grace from God. You can't add to the gift or contribute to the gift, but proud people don't get this. Or at least it hasn't sunk into their hearts deep enough to actually change their behavior and their character. They look for faults and sins in others as if to say to God, how awful are they, God? Look at them. I'd never do that. Don't you see, God, I'm better than them? Don't you see, God, I'm good enough for you? That's the essence of this. It doesn't work that way. That kind of religious pride is about you impressing God. But the humble know that God in Christ alone is satisfied with any life. You can't do anything extra to impress God even more. Humble people, then, are far more aware of the evidences of God's grace in other people's lives than the sins in their lives. They see these evidences of God's grace, God doing amazing things in them, first and foremost. That's what they appreciate. That's what they notice. That's what they comment on. Now, here's why. We, I, deserve death and hell. Everything else is grace. Now, do you really believe that? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just so you know, that's everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says the wages of sin, that is what is due to us because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Death and hell, anything else, is by the grace of God. 
You see, proud people have got this entitlement mentality. Everyone owes them something. Everything in their life that they have that's good, they deserve. Everything that's bad, they don't deserve. All they deserve is good and glory. But humble people, they know, I deserve no good thing. I deserve death and hell and punishment. That's what I deserve. Anything else I get is a gift of grace, and I'm going to praise God for it. So proud people concern themselves with their own needs and with other people's faults, but that's just entirely the wrong way around. Humble people, they concern themselves with their own faults, trying to, trying to grow, trying to become more like Jesus, and other people's needs, serving them. So are you more aware of people's faults or of God's grace in their lives? So that's the last one of my questions. I'm aware that after that, I know in preparing and coming up with these, I was really challenged by a lot of this stuff. I'm aware that many of you may be feeling, like I said earlier, you've had some spiritual jabs in the ribs. God is exposing areas of pride in your life. And you may be feeling a little bit beaten up, a little bit squashed down. Um, What I want to give you now is just a few tools for this fight, this fight against pride. It is something we've got to do battle with every day, to put pride to death and to grow in humility. The first one, and this is by far the most important one, we've got to kneel at the cross always. We've got to reflect on the wonder of what Jesus has done for us, the creator dying for his creation. We've got to get intimately familiar with what happened on the cross. The only reason we've got any chance in this battle is because on the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death. The power of sin over our lives is now broken. This is the only reason we have any chance of putting pride to death and doing battle with it. So how do we get closer to the cross? There's lots of things you can do. You can read some good books. You can try something like called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. That's quite a deep theological book. It's meaty, but it's worth working through if you can. Alternatively, there's another one by the same guy I talked about earlier, C.J. Mahaney. He wrote a book called The Cross-Centered Life. That's a lot smaller, simpler. Um, both of those books I've, I've read and found really, really beneficial, so I'd really recommend them to you. Another thing you can do is you take bread and wine often. You know, here, generally, we do that through our life groups. So if you're not in a life group, get in a life group. You'll get bread and wine together with that group of people. But don't keep it just there. Break bread and have wine in your homes and in your families. This isn't just something that... that you, you keep to when the wider church gathered together. This is something for all of us to remember, and it's a great way to remember what Jesus has done on the cross. Another one might not work for everyone, but for me it works, is the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that came out a number of years ago. I try and watch that fairly regularly, because for me, I'm a visual learner. That kind of thing really helps me get, really get to grips with what happened. Reading pages on a book, not, not so quickly, takes me more time. But just that, you know, that, that imagery of what really happened to Jesus is really powerful and helps you to appreciate what really happened to him. So that might be useful for you. It might not. That's for you to judge. So we need to kneel at the cross always. Things you can do daily. <clears throat> I don't know if, if you're kind of in the habit of, of praying, reading your word daily, but this is something that you can kind of put into that, that process if it'll help, which is to acknowledge your dependence on God and your need for him. It's good to do this at the beginning of the day because you can think ahead of what's coming and just recognize, God, I need you for all this stuff. I can't do everything you called me to do by myself. I need your help. And just acknowledge your dependence on him. That's a really powerful blow to pride. Next one, spend time in the Bible by any means necessary. Pray through it. I'm so glad that Melanie spoke on that a couple of weeks ago because it's really important for us to, to grasp. Getting the Bible into us frequently is, is so necessary. Next one, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. You've got to take responsibility for what you need to do. You can't just sit back and let God do everything. It doesn't quite work that way. You know, we, we partner with him. Take responsibility for what you need to do. But again, if you do this at the beginning of the day, it's good to think, you know, what am I worrying about? What am I concerned about? And just cast the anxiety of it onto God and trust him. And then lastly here, give God the glory at every opportunity. This might be something better to do maybe towards the end of the day. Look back on what's happened and think, you know, what, what's gone well today? What's been really good? And rather than giving yourself a big pat on the back thank God for it give him the glory thank him for the gifts he's put in you that enable you to do whatever it was just give God the glory for it and then some things that you can do over the longer term first one um, study the attributes of God you know it's good to to come to church to listen to preaching um, but that's not enough immerse yourself in other teachings study the attributes of God get to know him better And then that goes really well with the next one, which is regularly remind yourself of the gospel and get to know your identity in Christ better. Because these two work really well together. As we, you know, in our vision, as we get to understand and see God for who he really is, and our vision of ourselves gradually gets 
down to where it should be, which is even lower. There's no way we can, we can have that kind of prideful mentality. We need both of those. They work really well together. Next one's obvious. Get serving other people. We've talked about that already. Next one, deliberately look for evidences of God's grace in other people's lives. Try and teach yourself not to look for faults. It's something we're tempted to do often, to compare ourselves to other people, to look for faults in people. Try and teach yourself not to do that. Now, this is, this is a habitual thing. This can take some time. You know, scientists that look at kind of behavioral stuff, they, they reckon that it takes six weeks to either make or break or change a habit. This is going to take some time, but you've got to keep telling yourself, no, don't look for people's faults. Instead, try and, try and look for where there are evidences of God's grace in their lives. That will really help you. And then lastly here, invite and be open to input or correction from other people. Get in a life group if you're not in a life group. Do life with people. You know, rub up against each other. This is really important. Now, I want to conclude with some quotes, just to wrap up. first one's by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. Next, John Stott said this, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And then a couple more short ones. C.J. Mahaney says, So many times I've thought, Father, I want to stand as close to the cross as I possibly can, because it's harder for me to be arrogant when I'm there. The cross never flatters us. And then Stott also wrote, Far from offering us flattery... The cross undermines our self-righteousness and we can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. We need to kneel at the cross often. We need to draw near to it as much as we can. So would you please stand with me? Band, could you come up and get ready? If you could just play gently in the background for a minute. (laughs) Now, we don't need to be king in our lives. We can't be. This man is our king. This God is our Lord and Savior. He came out of heaven... He descended to earth. He came to serve us. He came to serve us, his subjects. We need him. We need to submit our lives to him. We need to give him glory, not contend with him for it. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death. Not just any death, but death on a cross. So we're going to sing about that together. Then I'll wrap up afterwards. We're going to sing a song, which is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Over to you guys.
You know, pride isn't put to death just by singing a song. It's a good start, but pride is not put to death just by singing a song. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong pursuit that's enabled by the grace of God, but also marked with regular repentance. Now, if God has highlighted areas of pride in your heart, in your life this morning, then you need to repent. And I don't want you to go away from here without dealing with it before God. Start today. But you must know the death of Christ and his resurrection are the power you need to be set free from these things. I'm going to do something we don't often do here at Real Life Church, but shortly I'm going to call people to respond and come forward if you've got things you want to deal with with God this morning because I want to pray for you. But also, it's not because there's special holy ground at the front of the room here, of course there isn't. It's because you know, the physical act of stepping out just in itself is a powerful blow to your pride and to the work of the devil. And God sees that humility of heart. He will bless you. So if that's you, if God has spoken to you, then I want to ask you, just please start coming forward to the front because I want to pray for you. (laughs) Thanks, John. I want to use this as an opportunity. Use this as an opportunity to search your own heart, search your own life. It's tempting to think of other people's faults. Oh, that person's proud. They should go forward. That's not what it's about this morning. It's about you. Where is the pride in your heart? you so i'm just going to pray generally for all of you and then i want to actually come and pray for each of you individually as well um but just hold out your hands let's receive jesus i want to thank you for dying for pride i ask you to forgive me i ask you to forgive all of these people for the pride in our hearts it is there we know it is and i pray for everyone else here as we consider our own hearts and our lives and our minds lord i thank you for the humility already on display here this morning these people coming forward I thank you for that humility in their heart please search us Lord see if there is any proud or evil or sinful way among us please Lord help us to make it a priority for the rest of our lives to put pride to death to do what we can to cultivate humility because Lord we want to become more like you we want you to be glorified and I pray this morning that you will break into people's lives that you will change us that you'll help us to defeat pride, that you'll help us get on that journey of daily putting it to death and cultivating humility. (coughs) And so we ask this in your good name, Jesus. Amen.
Okay, if you're meeting with God, feel just, just do feel free to sit, stand, do whatever it is you're doing. Just carry on receiving from him, meeting with him. It's not too late to come to the front if you want to. We're going to start to just sing. If you want to join us, go for it. If you want to just meet God in your own way, go for that too. <laughs>